This is the show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is the show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Well, political season is in full swing, and you, if you follow the show for any length of time, you know that I do my very best to avoid such topics. But every once in a while, our faith uh, overlaps with politics, and we have to uh, to examine these questions. So both parties have now had their conventions uh, and laid out their platforms and put out their best cases, and we shall see. Uh, we've got a couple of months left until the election. Uh, and anything, everything is still up in the air. Anything is possible. Now, I, I don't like to talk about politics. You, you know this. And part of the reason is as I look at the Gospels and I see Jesus walking with his apostles and giving them the example of what it means to follow Christ uh, and what it means to be a child of God in this age and in this world, what we see is that he doesn't really interface and engage with politics all that much. Um, many of the times he does end up talking about politics. It's because someone else has brought it up and brought it to his attention, and uh, maybe to do so in such a way as to trap him. One of the stories that comes to mind as I think about this and think about Jesus interfacing with politics is when the people came uh, and they said to him in an attempt to trap him, Jesus, do you think we should pay taxes to the Romans or not? And see, this was a really tricky trap, because if Jesus said, yes, you should pay taxes uh, outright, then they could they could say, well, you're supporting the oppressive government who has us enslaved and 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 is really, you know, you're you're with the Romans. How awful is this? Right. Uh, And if Jesus said, no, you shouldn't pay your taxes. Well, then they could turn him into the government because he would be inciting, right? He trying to get people to rebel against the government, and they could go and say, hey, this guy's saying don't pay taxes. And so they thought, hey, this is the perfect thing. We're going to get Jesus, and we're going to get his apostles by, by giving him this no-win scenario. And of course, the way that Jesus solved that is he said, bring me a coin. And they did, and he said, whose image is on this coin— and they said, well, it's it's Roman money. It's the picture of Caesar. And he said, so render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. Give to the government the government's due, and give to God that which is his due. And so here in this, uh, this scenario meant to entrap him, Jesus turned it around on them and said, okay, this is the reality in which we live, and we have to live within that reality, but... First and foremost, give to God the things that are his due. And this is ultimately what I would say to us all about politics. So often we get wrapped up in in the questions of, of platform and party, and we spend so much time in conjecture about what might happen that we allow ourselves uh, to lose our peace. We get wrapped up in uh, in the immediacy and the urgency that the news cycle gives us that the, the 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 politicians try to impose on us because when we have division in our nation, when we are polarized, when we are worried about the threat of what could happen if this politician or that politician doesn't get into power, then we become easier to control. 
when we when we speak out of fear, then we act out of fear. And when we act out of fear and not out of faith and not out of trust, then we become a people who are easy to manipulate. And so I, I my typical thing is if it seems urgent, give it a few days. Right? I was talking with um with a colleague of mine and he said he he it consumes the news about once a week. He says the immediacy of our news cycle can be damaging to us. Uh, and frankly, the news cycle is going to change several times um, because when it comes out immediately, it's often wrong and things develop. And so how much do we really need this constant news cycle for him? He says he doesn't, and he reads the news about once a week. And I tell you, that's really... Uh, appealing thing to me. And I know some people are more politically minded than I am and and want to be engaged in a more uh, immediate kind of a way. But I do want to ask how, how much are we allowing the immediacy of uh, and the fear mongering of our current news cycle to impact the way we live our lives? So the premise of this show is that we look at our lives through the lens of faith? What is the implication of our belief on our daily life? And so because of that, even though I hate to talk about politics, and I mean truly, I'm not looking forward to this to this show today because I, I, I don't like that we, uh, that our culture is so driven by politics. But I'm going to talk about it today, and I want to talk about it today because there are certain things that are incumbent upon us as Christians and incumbent upon us as Catholics uh, that that we should be paying attention to and not just blindly going with the crowd wherever the crowd goes. So uh, today we're going to have a conversation uh, a little bit further in the show with Deacon Stephen Gradanis, who I have just the utmost respect for. Uh, he's a film critic. He is uh, obviously a deacon for the Archdiocese of Newark, New Jersey. He writes for National Catholic Register. He's written for Crux and a number of other places. And he's got, I think, a very important perspective for us today as we look at forming our consciences with an eye toward voting. Uh, This is something that's so absolutely essential because it's very easy to go along with the flow of, of the general prevailing attitudes toward politics in our in our given state, in our given um, culture, whether that be a subculture or or just the broader uh, statewide, countywide, whatever political culture that you have, and and truly, politics for we who are Catholics ought to be somewhat of an uncomfortable proposition, because no matter what political party you are affiliated with. Uh, specifically if it's one of the big two, there is no comfortable place for a Catholic. Uh, On one side, uh, you have certain social teachings of the church that are upheld, but some moral teachings are completely ignored in one party. In the other party, you might have uh, the, the moral teachings that are upheld, but the social teachings of the church, which are so important, are ignored. And both of these, both the moral and the social teaching, 
are wrapped up in that second commandment, that second greatest commandment. The first greatest commandment, of course, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Ah, but the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself, to will the good of your neighbor and to will the common good of those who are your neighbors uh, just in the same way as you will the good of yourself, to love your neighbor as yourself, to recognize the inherent and inalienable dignity that every human person has by virtue of being made in the image of God. And that dignity extends to the unborn. It extends to the immigrant. It extends to the prisoner. And it's so important for us uh, to recognize that no matter what political party we back, uh, there... Uh, at least I haven't found it yet. There isn't one that we can get behind and say, I am really excited about this vote. Because no matter what we do, we have to compromise on some portion of our faith in order to uh, to support a specific candidate. Now, uh, there can be all kinds of questions or debates as to whether or not um, one's conscience should therefore go towards one direction or another, uh, or whether one should even vote at all. And these are, of course, questions that that need to be answered from a well-informed conscience. It's not something we can just make a decision about. Uh, it's something that we need to take the time to discern and to grow in uh, so that we can make a choice that that is as, as good as possible, given the scenario. I'm reminded of this quote, and I brought it up, I think, a little bit last week as well, but I want to actually quote it today. And this is from a letter uh, by J.R.R. Tolkien. And he says, actually, I am a Christian and indeed a Roman Catholic, so that I do not expect history to be anything but a long defeat, although it contains, and in legend may contain more clearly and movingly, some samples or glimpses of final victory. And this is how, it was specifically for me, looking at politics, I view the world. There's not going to be a scenario where I can cast my ballot and say, wow, I won all the way here. This is just absolutely perfect, uh, and, and it lines up with my faith, and I've, I feel like I have furthered uh, the cause of humanity uh, in line with my faith because of this vote. I just don't see that as being a, a possible scenario, given where we are in this point in time in our history and in this point in time with the political realities we see in the two-party system and the major two parties. And so today, as we have this conversation, uh, I I want to address the, uh, the assertion that's made by both parties, by people in both parties, that the answer to who you should vote for is perfectly clear, and not only perfectly clear, but mandated by our faith, because the truth of the matter is, it's not. Uh, And the church has made very clear that it's not. Now, you'll find some very passionate lay people and some apologists who will will tell you that the church has, has mandated a very specific outcome. But generally, that comes from taking a phrase out of context or by taking only part of something the church has said, rather than looking at the the broader picture. And so uh, we want to take the time, as people of faith, to make the choice that's most in line with our faith, and 
frankly, that's not something that's been lined out for us. It's been something that has been presented to us in a series of principles and presented to us in such a way that we have to really take the time to discern and to weigh. And we like to do things that are summarized and easy and laid out for us and just tell me what to do and I'll do it. But the church doesn't want to just tell us what to do. The church wants us to be holy and to draw us into holiness. And we do that by being in relationship with Jesus. We do that by spending the time in prayer and discernment and by forming our consciences. And so we're going to explore this question today of how do we form our consciences with an eye toward voting? We're talking today with Deacon Stephen Gradanis, who is a, a deacon for the Archdiocese of Newark, New Jersey. Uh, someone I've respected for quite some time as when I first came into the church, he was uh, writing, still is writing for the National Catholic Register, where he is a film critic and uh, every once in a while puts his thoughts on other matters to pen and paper as well. And uh, recently in his social media interactions on Facebook and, and Twitter, he's been engaging in some uh, an encouragement and kind of elaboration on that process that we've been talking about, that process of forming our consciences specifically with an eye toward the vote. And as I've been kind of exploring this idea, one of the things that um, that I've been looking at and focusing on is that quote from G.K. Chesterton back in uh, in his essay on the Catholic Church and conversion, where he talks about, we don't want a church that is right where we are right. Rather, we want a church that's right where we are wrong. Uh, and it's a much longer quote, but basically saying we want a church that can bump bump up against those places where we are in error and have the authority to correct us. And so that that's where I look at um, our politics, whatever side we happen to be on, specifically looking at these polarized days uh, and realizing that the church has something to say about our politics. You look at the the two conventions that just happened, and you have a a Catholic priest at each one that tends to fit that specific audience coming and offering that opening prayer. But in each occasion, that priest prayed something that that the general audience would agree with, and also something that would have challenged that belief or that platform. And I think that's something that's so characteristic and so important about our faith— and something that you and I ought to be cognizant of as we begin to form our consciences for the vote that's coming up very soon. So, Deacon Stephen Gradanis, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, one of the things that we see very often is that um, our politics and our faith tend to be kind of molded after one another, either one way or the other. Either we're going to let our faith form and mold our politics, or as is much more often the case these days uh, as we look at social media, we let our politics form our faith. Can you talk about that that battle going on between faith and politics and the struggle it is uh, to form our consciences in the proper way? That, that is a constant struggle, and one of the things that complicates that struggle is that our faith does not give us a specific political agenda. There is no polity in the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't tell us how to organize a government. It doesn't tell us what the best kind of government is. It doesn't tell us what are the right social structures um, to take responsibility for um, uh, ensuring 
uh, justice or uh, equality of opportunity um, for uh, redressing the injustices in society. What it gives us and what the, new, what the Bible as a whole and what our faith as a whole gives us are uh, priorities, things that we are supposed to care about, um, and a basis for which to critique both specific agenda items that might be proposed under a given system of government or under the given vision of a particular political party, um, and, and also things that we want to try to achieve. So it's natural for all of us, because we're all political creatures, we all find our, and we're, we're creatures of culture, we're creatures of culture and politics, we find ourselves swimming in a cultural sea and exposed to certain cultural and political ideas that have formed us and formed our communities from our, our childhood and, and that become part of the lenses through which we see the world. And it becomes very easy for us to find the correlations between themes in our faith and themes in the teachings of scripture and of the church and the way that we tend to see the world anyway. Uh, based on other influences, based on our cultural and our political leanings, and to downplay the elements of tension. Um, so while Chesterton is right that what we want in the abstract, in the ideal, is a church that tells us not where we're right but where we're wrong, what we tend to see because of confirmation bias and because of uh, our, our the, just the fact that it's very hard to see the world except through the lenses that we have we, we tend to look for those areas where our faith tells us that we're right. Mm -hmm. Well, and in that same passage of the Chesterton quote, uh, he talks about, uh, they say, the, the people who subscribe to religion, they say that they want a religion that is that is open to the modern mood when really they would have the mood with even without the religion. So often we want to tailor our, our faith and, and our devotional practices to who we already are, rather than examining ourselves and really challenging our consciences uh, to who it is that God is calling us to be as saints and and as the holy people, peculiar people of God. And, and you can really see that at work when we see how malleable people are with changing circumstances and changing cultural norms. As And I'll give you an example on both sides of the political aisle. Um, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, it was perfectly possible and even common to be a progressive Democrat in many respects and also to be pro-life. Um, Bill Clinton was, um, um, Jesse Jackson was, Al Gore, um, Ted Kennedy, many other people. And uh, unfortunately, in the mid-70s into the early 80s, a kind of tragic political realignment took place. Uh, as the Republican Party became more conservative, not only on abortion, but in other respects, um, uh, pro and pro-life Democrats, particularly in the South, began fleeing from the Democratic Party uh, and joining the Republican Party, uh, abortion really be start, became a sine qua non for the Democrats. And, and those pro-life convictions just fell away very easily. And that tells you that for those people, uh, they're letting their, their politics inform their faith rather than the other way around. And we have seen in the last few years a lot of consternation and cognitive dissonance from 
people who have watched conservatives um, decrying the personal immorality of slick Willie Clinton and talking about character and, and how that matters and how, you know, suddenly um, not so very long afterward, we're being told that we are not electing a pastor in chief mm-hmm. and, and that um, uh, it's, it's the issues and, and personal morality is not so important after all. Now, way back uh, in one of your earlier answers, you talked about uh, how um, the church does not give us any specific guidance on on how to on on which way to cast our ballot, but very much so, the church does give us information on how to cast our ballot, not on who to cast it for, but on how to cast it. There's this beautiful document put together by the bishops called Forming Your Consciences for Faithful Citizenship, which is a lengthy but challenging document. Um, but so often we see the, the, the cliff notes of, of these as various organizations or individual bloggers try to summarize that. Um, they, they do so, I think, at the expense of its own integral integrity, right? So they, they say, well, here's basically the sum of it. And then, of course, they, they would tilt that towards the thing that they're maybe more concerned about. And so we see uh, tweets or, or comments or blog posts or, or pamphlets talking about whether or not it is, it is a, a sin to vote for a specific candidate when, of course, the church herself would never go that far as to speak of uh, which specific candidate one should or should not vote for. Yeah, and and there are, I think, here also uh, errors or excesses that tend in both directions. On, on the one hand, you have conservatives decrying what they call um, seamless garment thinking. Uh, and this is the idea that um, all of the church's teachings on social um, and moral issues as, as with respect to how our faith, um, um, the, the implications of our faith for social policy and, and for our political life, all of those issues are important. And the charges, some people on the progressive side use the importance of everything in order to downplay certain things and, and emphasize others. So for instance, um, abortion is just one issue among many and, um, the progressives' pet theory of, um, um, you know, uh, caring for the poor, what, what we have to do in terms of, you know, food programs or, or whatever it is, that's, that's equally important. And if you, if you dissent from a particular um, political position, that's just as bad as if you support abortion. On the other hand, you have the conservative tendency to kind of boil down the church's teachings into a handful of non-negotiables. Um, and, and these are the things which are where, where there is an issue of intrinsic wrong, um, and it is a, a, a partisan issue, issues like abortion and um, euthanasia and uh, embryonic stem cell research and so forth, um, uh, same-sex marriage, uh, and, and these issues, they become kind of super issues and everything else then is downgraded to negotiable status. And, and both of these perspectives are, are really kind of distorted. Um, for one thing, whether something is intrinsically evil or only extrinsically evil doesn't necessarily make it super bad or less bad. You know, um, um, 
opposing a particular war. That do, do we go to war or do we not go to war? Um, war is, is if, if war is immoral, it's an extrinsic evil. But if it is evil, it's a really, really bad evil. <laughs> I mean, you're still talking about uh, potentially hundreds of thousands of, of lives um, being lost uh, for the sake of something that's evil. And, and, you know, you can't say that that's less evil than the hundreds of thousands of lives that are lost in abortion, um, just because one is intrinsic and the other is extrinsic. Uh, so we have to use our prudential judgment and we have to bring our prudential judgment to bear on the whole host of issues, the issues that we think in our judgment, candidate A is right and wrong about, and the issues that we think, in our judgment, candidate B is right and wrong about, informed by church teaching and also informed where necessary by our own prudential judgment as regards questions of extrinsic evil. But then we also have to take a look at what we think are the practical implications of voting for or, or for getting one candidate, one administration versus another. You know, so just because candidate A is for or against policy position A and candidate B has the opposite. What is actually going to happen if this candidate or that candidate is, is, is elected? Of course, we, we can never know. We can't predict. We have to try to come to some kind of judgment about how good or how bad it would be for the country overall to have one candidate or another. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned something here that we don't have a lot of time to get in this segment, but I want to hit a little bit harder in this next one. You talk about being having our vote informed, informed by church teaching, informed by our prudential judgment. But so often we tend to treat these things or even treat our conscience as if it is a an intuition or some gut reaction rather than something that is actually uh, taking the time to craft and to form and to inform. Yes. Um, uh, in, in the final sense, conscience refers to one's last best judgment of what is right to do, what must be done. Um, and that is the voice of conscience that must always be obeyed. No exceptions. Now, if your conscience is misinformed and you arrive at an incorrect last best judgment of what you ought to do, then you're in a no-win scenario. You will infallibly do something that will be bad for you in one way or another. It might be more or less culpable on your soul, um, but but you have no good options at, at that point. So properly informing our conscience to arrive at the best judgment we can of what ought to be done, and that includes, this is why God has given us the help of divine revelation and of magisterial teaching and of the church's social teaching to try to arrive at the best possible judgment of what it is that we ought to do. Well, I think the thing that most sticks out to me is that this is not an easy process and anyone who tells you that it is clear cut or easy and and it shouldn't create any distress for you uh, is simply making it out to be uh, easier than it is. But the church has given us help through church documents, through uh, the guidance of the bishops. And so we are not helpless, but it does take some hard work. We're talking today with Deacon Stephen Gradanis, who writes for the National Catholic Register as well as is a film critic at DecentFilms.com. There's much more to this conversation coming up right after the break. I'm sure that you have some thoughts you want to process. Come over and have a conversation with me at social media, Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. Don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. And uh, gosh, we, last couple of weeks we had the um, the political, uh, the, the what did they call them? The, the conventions, that's the word I'm looking for. We had the conventions, uh, they were all broadcasts for us all to see. I kind of stayed away from them as much as possible because, I don't know, they, I... I know that politics are of essential importance, and I am a person who uh, will be present at the vote, but I see so much, maybe this is too strong a word, so much duplicity in our politics. Uh, and, and, you know, the, it's the common trope, the common um, stereotype that our politicians don't tell us the truth. And so, uh, you know, I I personally have tried to stay out of the fray and yet the church does encourage us and draw us towards political engagement. And so I think it's important for us to have this conversation. But because this is a topic I don't like to talk about, I'm bringing in someone who has done a very good job talking about this uh, online, in print. Uh, and so we welcome today Deacon Stephen Gradanis, who is a deacon for the Archdiocese of Newark, New Jersey. Uh, deacon, thank you for being with us again today. Thank you. It's good to be here. So we're talking about forming our consciences and, and in specific, uh, to realize that they don't just come out um, automatically perfect, that we need to read some things that are challenging to us. And I recall when I first went out and began to read some of these these challenging works like uh, Centissimus Annus or Rerum Novarum that the church is providing for us some questions about how we treat one another and how we order ourselves as a society that were actually kind of shocking to me, uh, but provided some direction. I had to recognize and acknowledge came from the church and they were challenging, but I needed to wrestle with them until that helped form the conscience. Can you tell me something that um, that you read, a, a, a thing that maybe the church challenged you on in this political arena as you were forming your conscience that maybe shifted a perspective that you otherwise had? So the first thing that I had to grapple with was the church's teaching in the social sphere um, um, at all, you know, because the church's competence to judge matters of faith and morals uh, and, and, when she does so definitively, she is infallibly guided by the Holy Spirit um, not to contradict the deposit of faith or, or to, uh, uh, to go into error. Um, in, in matters of politics, uh, there, I mean, there are obviously areas where the church can speak infallibly because it directly pertains to matters of faith and morals, like the immorality of taking innocent human life, you know, whether it's by euthanasia or, or by abortion. Um, but the church also makes judgments in other areas where there is more room for disagreement and where if someone disagrees with the church, that doesn't necessarily automatically make them a bad Catholic. But the church teaches in the catechism that it is part of the church's mission to pass, I'm quoting here, to pass moral judgments even in matters related to politics whenever the fundamental rights of man or the salvation of souls requires it. The means, the only means she may use are those which accord with the gospel and the welfare of all men, according to the diversity of time and circumstances. So the catechism goes on to say that 
Christian revelation promotes deeper understanding of the laws of social living and that um, that the church's mission demands um, judgments in this area. And, and so the church's teaching, the catechism concludes, the church's social teaching comprises a body of doctrine, which is articulated as the church interprets events in the course of history with the assistance of the Holy Spirit in the light of the whole of what has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And here's where the rubber meets the road for us as Catholics. The final sentence in this section, this is um, um, text section, catechism section uh, 2246 and 2420 through 2422. Um, this teaching can be more easily accepted by men of goodwill the more the faithful let themselves be guided by it. So that's a challenge. It doesn't say you have to accept this or you're a bad Catholic. But when you allow yourselves to be guided by the church's social teaching, it becomes more easily accepted by men of goodwill, even outside the faith. And an area where I think the church's teaching challenged me in particular in this was in regard to the death penalty. So I, from the, from the time that I was a, you know, a young man um, beginning to form my political thinking, it, it seemed reasonable and right to me that the death penalty was an appropriate uh, uh, recourse in the case of certain heinous crimes. And John Paul II was strongly against the death penalty. He, he clearly indicated that he hoped that we would abolish the death penalty. Um, he did allow for it, but he, he taught something very striking. He, he made it a move in his teaching, equating the conditions where the death penalty is allowed with other cases where you can take human life, like with lawful self-defense or with just war, only when there is no other alternative for defending human life. And he went on to argue, it doesn't seem as if that condition really applies anymore in developed societies. That teaching was reiterated in its essence by Pope Benedict and very, very strongly by Pope Francis. And in the light of this papal insistence that even though the death penalty may not be intrinsically evil in all cases, men of goodwill are obliged to oppose it in practical terms, uh, challenged me to rethink it and to change my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I look at this and I want to be very clear that the whole purpose of this episode in conversation is not to get anyone to change their vote or the way they're going to vote, but rather I see so many people out there, um, whether it be through a personal uh, social media profiles or whether they have a platform um, that's a little bit larger than that. I see so many people saying, well, the church demands that you uh, look at this issue or look at this uh, set of issues as the most important and basically saying things that the church herself doesn't say. And I see that as a, a really troubling thing because we shouldn't tread and, and, and say, oh, well, well, in order to be a good Catholic, uh, the church says, and therefore, because she says it with the authority of God, God says you have to do this or else. It kind of, to me, harkens back to the Garden of Eden where Adam gave a command to Eve that God had never given to Adam, right? That whole, uh, well, you shouldn't eat it or even, or even look at it <laughs> or, or you'll die. And we, we get this sense in our political discourse uh, that there is a, a certain sense of, of extra stridency and urgency around it as, as we are instructed by, by those with a voice of what's important and how we have to do things. 
Um, and so my goal in this is to, to provide the freedom that the church provides and to open our eyes and ears to, to maybe some other possibilities. So um, in the last election, this came up, uh, well, probably many before that, but the first time that I really experienced it was the last election, was this question of whether the two-party system really is the best, because frankly, it keeps giving us choices that neither one of which are really appropriate within uh, seeking out holiness for our nation, um, and whether or not a third party is a positive thing or whether it is, quote-unquote, wasting a vote. Um, I know that you've had considerable time to think about this, so what's your perspective on that? Yes, I, I have been thinking about this issue very seriously since at least 2008. Um, and there was not a candidate in that race that I really strongly supported. Um, I don't like to talk about how I voted, but the bottom line is it did seem to me that there was a Catholic case to be made for voting for John McCain. And, um, I felt very strongly that it was wrong to vote for Barack Obama. That was my my personal discernment in 2008, but I did see my way clear to making the case that it might be legitimate to vote third party. Um, so either voting for McCain or voting for third party seemed to me in 2008 defensible choices. Um, and of course, there are two different issues. One is, is the two-party system bad and would it be better to have a third viable party? And then the second question, which is quite separate from that, is does it make sense to vote third party? Because it's entirely possible, and I think even likely, if our election laws remain as they are, that third-party voters can vote third-party in every election for the next hundred years, and we will never have a viable third party. It's going to continue to just be the Republicans and the Democrats. And so what you do when you vote third-party is you take out your ability, in theory, to contribute something to the decision whether it's going to be a Republican or a Democrat. Now, the hope is that even if a third-party candidate never really gets a substantial number of votes, and even if voting for third party probably means that whichever of the two candidates you like less is more likely to win, um, you can potentially put pressure on the party that you are less opposed to to move more in your direction. The theory is they will want my vote it's going to be close. If they see I'm closer to them than to the other side, but they're not going to get me if they keep compromising on my issues, they may move more in my direction in order to get my vote. That's the theory. Now, how well that works, I'm, I'm not here to discuss. But I think there is a reasonable theory in favor of voting th third party, especially if you happen to be in a state which is more or less secure and the side of one um, party or the other. You know, you're not going to change the election with your vote, but if you contribute to a number of people who are saying we're dissatisfied with the two choices, you could theoretically affect the coloring of the two major parties. The other thing that I want to ask is, um, and this will be the our, our final question today. Uh, so often we see that our politicians will uh, will espouse a platform, and so so often we hear you're not voting for the candidate, you're voting for the platform. And yet at the same time, um, we see that, that that issue that's most important to many of us, that, that issue of abortion, doesn't really get addressed in a statistically significant way. 
um, that that it is maybe a couple of things are done for lip service, but even when the, the full party, you know, all the branches of government are covered, we still see that this is treated as a secondary issue. And other issues, which we wouldn't think are quite as important, they're able to get those pushed through in a, in a very quick and efficient way, whereas the topic of abortion still these 40 years uh, on is still a present and pressing issue. So how do you vote for someone who who may be opposed to church teaching on something um, in, in this case where you're not actually sure that the person who's on your side is going to do anything about it? Right. And, and this to me is really the, the most fundamental weakness with the perspective that says, well, so abortion is the single greatest moral issue um, in, in public life today because of the sheer scale of the taking of human life. The, the enormity of it is, 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 it isn't comparable to anything short of the Holocaust. So, so nothing else can, can compensate for that, or, or as you might say, nothing else can trump that. Um, and when um, people bring up the, the perspective uh, articulated by um, Cardinal Ratzinger in Worthiness to Receive Communion, uh, where he talks about the difference between formally cooperating in evil um, versus mate- uh, remote material cooperation as when you vote for a candidate who has a, a, a wrong view on, on an issue like abortion or euthanasia. And you don't vote for them because of that, but you vote for them for other reasons where you think they're superior to the other. You can only do that if there's really proportionate reasons to the issue that you're ignoring, in this case, abortion. So if a Catholic, a pro-life Catholic is going to vote for Joe Biden, they're going to have to say, I don't agree with his position on abortion, but I think that there are proportionate reasons for being willing to do that. And so pro-lifers often say, what could possibly be proportionate to abortion? And to me, I think it's very important to ask, what are we talking about concretely voting for, for or against in terms of the actual outcomes from one administration or another? I mean, if I believed that President Trump would end abortion or cut it in half or cut it by a third or a quarter or even a tenth, and President Biden would double abortion or increase it by a third or a quarter or a tenth or even just keep it steady, that would be a very strong reason for all pro-life Catholics to vote for Trump. But in fact, neither of those things is going to happen. Um, and in fact, President Trump didn't even include a- abortion in his agenda item of what the 50 things he wants to get done in the next four years. And as you indicated, um, in the first two years of his term, Republicans controlled the House and the Senate. So far from trying to take significant action, they didn't even vote to defund Planned Parenthood. Um, and over the last 40 years, plus, it's been very difficult to try to prove concretely that either GOP or Democratic administrations have any effect whatsoever on abortion rates in America. Uh, abortion rates have been falling for decades. They're going to be to continue to fall for decades. That doesn't mean it doesn't matter which man is president and all things being equal. We don't want someone who's pro-choice in office, but it may be that abortion would fall faster under one or the other. Why would that happen? Is it because of their abortion policy or is it more likely to happen because of how quickly demand for abortion drops? And why does demand for abortion drop? Probably not because of how friendly or hostile to abortion the president is. Probably it has more to do with factors like their 
socioeconomic policy. And, you know, some people think that people in general and the country as a whole do better under Republican socioeconomic policies. And other people think Democratic policies are better in general. And I'm not here to answer that or to tell anyone who to vote for. But if someone believes that President Biden's socioeconomic policies were superior to Trump's in such a way that the country would do better in general and demand for abortion would drop more quickly under President Biden than under Trump, that would be a pro-life reason to vote for Biden. Another possible pro-life reason to vote for Biden, I'm just this is not my opinion, but this is something someone might believe, is if they considered Trump to be so damaging in general, his deficiencies of character, of competence, that by embracing him, the pro-life movement was actually harming their credibility, alienating people from them, and not just from the pro-life movement, but from republicanism and from conservatism in general. That could also be a reason to reject Trump as a viable standard bearer for our movement in the hopes of ultimately someday reclaiming some semblance of moral credibility. Mm-hmm. We're talking today with Deacon Stephen Gradonis, and of course, these are difficult conversations. Uh, as you listen, you may be uh, clapping along. You may be angry, uh, but one one of the things that's likely going to happen is it's going to generate some emotion. So let's have a conversation about this over on our social media. Come over to facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. And let's talk about this. Our, our goal is to form our consciences, not to tell anyone how to vote or how they should vote, but merely to provide the freedom that the church provides, that your vote is not already a foregone conclusion. There is freedom for how you view the world. There is room for prudential judgment, even in these very difficult uh, and very clear-cut topics uh, of of, uh, intrinsic evils and the like. So come over, let's have a conversation. Deacon, thank you so much for joining us here on air today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you missed any part of my show or you want to subject someone else to it, uh, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. As always, there's an extra segment available to all those who support the show through Patreon. And I promise the extra segment is going to be a little bit lighter in tone than the main episode has been. If you want access to that, go to OutsideTheWalls.com. Up in the top right-hand corner of the page, you'll see the link that says Support the Show hyphen Patreon. Click that link, follow the directions, and get your extra segment. Now, let's turn our attention to our reading from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of our Verbum Library launching up. You can get your Verbum Library at Verbum.com. Try it out for free for 30 days. Our reading from Scripture comes from Philippians chapter 4. And this is one that's been on my mind a lot lately, specifically as Uh, as we've seen the unrest in our world and as we are looking at the political sphere. And it says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I shall say it again, rejoice. Your kindness should be known to all. The Lord is near. Have no anxiety at all, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
Keep on doing what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Then the God of peace will be with you. That reading comes from Philippians 4, and there's a couple of things that I want to point out. First of all, let's get to that whatsoever things are true, honorable, so forth. Uh, I, I've often heard that presented in such a way as to say, think on things that are are noble and are pure and are, and are pleasant and are happy, uh, and, and really kind of pr- proposed as this power of positive thinking kind of, of way of being, almost as if Christianity were a Pollyanna. We're not going to think about those things that are less desirable or a little bit uglier. We're going to think on what is true and honorable. And, and so um, many people refuse to even pay attention to things that are more difficult because I need to think good thoughts. I need to, like Peter Pan, if I think a happy thought, I'm going to be able to fly. And that's not the case here. In fact, in some ways, it's exactly the opposite. Whatsoever thing is true, specifically in a world of lies. Uh, Whatsoever thing is lovely. And here, whatsoever thing is honorable and just. So that means that we're called to pay attention to justice, to think on those things that are just, specifically as we live in an unjust world. And so sometimes that requires us to look at the darker side, and never to be overcome by the darkness, never to be overpowered or or um, oppressed by it, but rather to look at it and to stand for what is right and true and honorable and just in a world that would reject those things. And so, yes, we do keep our minds uh, on what is true and good and just. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, uh, but we don't ignore the difficulties of the world and shut them out in an effort to do this. Rather, this calls us more clearly to stand for those things that are right and true and just. And then lastly, I want to talk about this, have no anxiety at all, but in everything by prayer and petition. This is really uh, specifically, um, I think, apropos for this conversation about politics, because so much of politics is an effort to get you to feel anxious uh, both parties have put out their their talking points, and the talking points generally are supposed to gen up fear about what happens if the other person gets in. But the truth of the matter is this. No matter who gets in, God is on his throne. No matter who gets in, we render under Caesar what is Caesar's, and we render unto God what is God's. And, and so... Um, I dealt with this a lot in previous elections, really getting overwhelmed at the possibility of my person not making it in. And I think the last election is the one where I just was set free from that, uh, realizing that these things are not as uh, as immediate as the world would have you believe. Every, the, both parties want you to think that the world is going to collapse and crumble if their person doesn't get in, and it's simply not the truth. Um, things may be easier or harder depending on who gets in, but have no anxiety about anything because the Lord is near. Our reading from church history today comes from a homily on Matthew by St. John Chrysostom. Do you want to honor Christ's body? Then do not scorn him in his nakedness, nor honor him here in the church with silken garments while neglecting him outside where he is cold and naked. For he who said, This is my body, and made it so by his words, also said, You saw me hungry and did not feed me. 
And inasmuch as you did not do it for one of these, the least of my brethren, you did not do it for me. What we do here in the church requires a pure heart, not special garments. What we do outside requires great dedication. Let us learn, therefore, to be men of wisdom and to honor Christ as he desires. For a person being honored finds greatest pleasure in the honor he desires, not in the honor we think best. Peter thought he was honoring Christ when he refused to let him wash his feet. But what Peter wanted was not truly an honor, quite the opposite. Give him the honor prescribed in his law by giving your riches to the poor. For God does not want golden vessels, but golden hearts. Now in saying this, I am not forbidding you to make such gifts. I am only demanding that along with such gifts and before them, you give alms. He accepts the former, but he is much more pleased with the latter. In the former, only the giver profits. In the latter, the recipient does too. A gift to the church may be taken as a form of ostentation, but alms is pure kindness. Of what use is it to weigh down Christ's table with golden cups when he himself is dying of hunger? First, Fill him when he is hungry. Then use the means you have left to adorn his table. Will you have a golden cup made, but not give a cup of water? What is the use of providing the table with cloths woven of gold thread and not providing Christ himself with the clothes he needs? What profit is there in that? Tell me, if you were to see him lacking the necessary food, but were to leave him in that state and merely surround his table with gold, would he be grateful to you, or rather would he not be angry? What if you were to see him clad in worn-out rags and stiff from the cold, and were to forget about clothing him and instead were to set up golden columns for him, saying that you were doing it in his honor? Would he not think that he was being mocked and greatly insulted? Apply this also to Christ when he comes along the roads as a pilgrim looking for shelter. You do not take him in as your guest, but you decorate the floor and the walls and the capitals of the pillars. You provide silver chains for the lamps, but you cannot bear to even look at him as he lies chained in prison. Once again, I am not forbidding you to supply these adornments. I am urging you to provide these other things as well, and indeed to provide them first. No one has ever been accused for not providing ornaments. But for those who neglect their neighbor, a hell awaits with an inextinguishable fire and torment in the company of demons. Do not therefore adorn the church and ignore your afflicted brother, for he is the most precious temple of all. That challenging reading comes from a homily on Matthew by St. John Chrysostom, and that's one for us to keep in mind as we begin to form our conscience with an eye towards faithful citizenship, towards our vote coming up in a couple of months. That's all the time we have for today's show. Today's show was brought to you by Eileen and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, and join their numbers. Until next week, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. All things are passing, but God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things. He who has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices.